Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we hear from private funds expert and current NSCP board chair-elect Jeff Blumberg to provide us with an in-depth review of the recent private fund rule proposals and their potential impact on the industry. In our headline section, we look at the recent executive order from President Biden on cryptocurrencies and digital assets and some recent changes in the leadership of the SEC. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of the Outtake series, where a recent disciplinary action can provide the perfect punch list to help make sure your broker-dealer firm is meeting its requirements to obtain best execution. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, on March 9th, 2022, President Biden signed an executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets, which outlined a first-ever whole-of-government approach to address the risks and potential benefits of digital assets. In the accompanying fact sheet, the White House identified seven key priorities, notably the protection of U.S. consumers, investors, and businesses, the protection of U.S. financial stability and mitigation of systemic risk, the mitigation of illicit finance and national security risks. Here, the president was uh, directed all relevant U.S. government agencies to give an unprecedented focus of coordinated action in order to mitigate all risks associated with digital assets. Some other of the key priorities included the promotion of U.S. leadership in the global financial system, the promotion of equitable access to safe and affordable financial services, the support of the U.S. government to ensure technological advances and the responsible development of digital assets, and finally, the exploration of a U.S. central bank digital currency. On that last point, the president directed U.S. government agencies to analyze the, quote, technological infrastructure and capacity needs for a potential U.S. CBDC in a manner that protects Americans' interests, end quote. A few major items of note here. First, the issuance of the executive order was accompanied by supportive statements from numerous senior U.S. government and regulatory officials, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, National Economic Council Director Brian Deese, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Senate Banking Committee Chair Sherrod Brown, CFTC Chair Rostine Benham, and CFPB Director Rohit Chapra. In light of the above, the president is requiring the involvement of at least eight different cabinet members, numerous agencies, and every federal financial regulator, among many others, to help formulate these policies. Just given the sheer coordination that would have to be involved in in an effort like that, and the diversity of interest to be considered, uh, the executive order doesn't exactly provide a whole lot in the way of direction. That being said, the executive order does draw out some interesting connections indicating that digital assets have implications for climate change, financial growth, financial inclusion, illicit finance, international engagements, democratic values, global competitiveness, and much more. It states, the United States must be a, quote, global leader in the development and adoption of digital assets and related innovation, end quote. But we must also develop very substantial regulatory systems. Finally, the executive order does seem to indicate federal movement toward that development of a central bank digital currency. 
Section four of the executive order is devoted to this topic, and there are numerous other references to the issue throughout the order. It would definitely seem like maybe a more specific proposal would likely be imminent at some point down the road. For our next headline, we've had two significant shakeups in the leadership of the SEC. First, in mid-March, Commissioner Lee notified President Biden that she will not seek a second term as commissioner. Ms. Lee's term expires in June, and she did agree to remain on as commissioner until such time that a successor could be appointed. Ms. Lee had been with the SEC since 2005, and before, coming in, and before becoming commissioner, she served as counselor to former commissioner Kara Stein, senior counselor in the Complex Financial Instruments Unit. Notably, she also served as the acting chair in 2021 before the confirmation of SEC current chair Gary Gensler. Chair Gensler commended Ms. Lee for her service, highlighting her focus on climate-related disclosures, among many others, during her tenure as acting chair. In addition to Ms. Lee, we also just found out that Dan Call, current acting director of the SEC's Division of Examinations, will depart the agency after more than 21 years of service. Richard R. Best, director of the SEC's New York Regional Office, will step in as the acting director of the Division of Examinations upon Mr. Call's departure. Chair Gensler said, quote, I am grateful to Dan for his 20 plus years of service at the SEC, most recently as acting director of the Division of Examinations. Chair Gensler went on to say, quote, our examinations program is so crucial to the SEC's work to protect investors, and we have benefited from Dan's leadership, professionalism, and collaboration, end quote. Chair Gensler ended his remarks by noting his appreciation to new acting director Richard Best for leading the Division of Examinations and to Laura Mehrabin, who will serve as the new acting director of the New York Regional Office. For those that have been paying attention to the news cycle in the investment management space recently, one of the items that certainly you have seen come across your wire is the SEC's focus in the private funds area. And as we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome in a private funds and private equity expert, Mr. Jeff Blumberg. Jeff is a partner with the law firm Fegri Drinker. Uh, he works out of the Chicago office. And Jeff uh, is a, an incredibly experienced investment management lawyer who helps clients navigate regulatory, corporate governance, business and structural matters of all kinds, uh, but in particular has a, a depth and breadth of knowledge in the private fund space that we're really going to be able to tap into today. Really, really glad. Oh, Jeff is also a fellow board member of uh, the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and uh, we are really, really excited to have him on the show today. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I thought to kick off our conversation on the private funds uh, in, the, in the private fund space today, I'm going to harken back to some comments that current SEC Commissioner Gensler made last November. Um, to the Institutional Limited Partners Association. And again, I think uh, for many of our listeners, um, especially those that are active in the private fund space, uh, they probably had uh, seen or at least heard of some of these remarks before. But he really, during that speech, Chair Gensler really kind of began by re reviewing the overall kind of federal securities laws and the evolution of them and their application to private funds. And he noted, you know, in particular that it wasn't really until 2010 and the Dodd-Frank Act that private fund advisors 
were really brought kind of fully under the umbrella of the Advisors Act. And and then he, he further suggested that the SEC would really start to consider uh, fully, you know, extending further the reach of these federal securities laws into the operation of private funds and, you know, expressing some concern, I think, uh, that he has for the protection of private fund limited partners, which, you know, he noted include certainly wealthy individuals, accredited investors, but also retirement plans and, you know, pension plans, endowments, etc. Um, and then he began by getting into kind of five specific areas that, you know, he asked the SEC staff to consider, you know, recommendations, and and I'll quote here, to uh, bring more sunshine and competition to the private fund space. So he talked a little bit about fees and expenses, and he talked about side letters. He talked about performance metrics. Uh, you know, he talked about fiduciary duties and conflicts of interest. And then he talked about amendments to form PF. In the last several weeks, we have seen a flurry of activity now in the private fund space that really uh, kind of kicked off initially with uh, some amendments uh, uh, that were proposed uh, to form PF. And so I guess just you know, kind of at the outset of our conversation today, uh, would love to you know get your thoughts uh, uh, at a high level on you know Chair Gensler's remarks, maybe at the OPA conference, just kind of in generally what what appears to be his approach in the private fund space, and then I'd love to dig in and we can talk about maybe some of those kind of specific amendments to, to form PF. Sure, sure, happy to. So I mean, first and foremost, Chair Gensler is basically continuing his uh, his efforts from his time at the CFTC. You know, if you remember when he was chair of the CFTC, he made some some really significant changes in the regulatory framework, especially for the more retail environment. And I think his time at the SEC is just going to be part two of that book. He's made it very clear that he is going to be a very active uh, chair and will be looking to implement rules that will potentially change the, the the playing field for private fund advisors. I will say, in my opinion, these are solutions looking for a problem. You know, I think the SEC has a relatively bad track record when it comes to trying to regulate private funds. They keep, you know, if you remember that the hedge fund rule from whenever that was in the early 2000s and Phil Goldstein sued the SEC saying, you know, basically you you can't change the meaning of a word in a statute by regulatory fiat. And he won. And the SEC had to backtrack and start over and say, okay, we're not going to change the definition of a client. We're just going to get rid of our de minimis exemption. So the net result wasn't that different, but the entire approach just seemed a little bit backwards to me. Another good example of this is the custody rule. You know, no head, no private fund manager likes the custody rule. And that, again, it's a solution looking for a problem. They could have, I think they could have fixed the the custody issue. They could have fixed 99.9% of the problems just by mandating independent administration of private funds. That would have fixed the vast majority of the problems. And I understand why they didn't do that. There, there are some political footballs there that, that maybe are problematic, but they didn't need to adopt the custody rule because once that idea got out there, all the institutional investors started insisting on independent administrators. So right. effectively, effectively, you got there. So this is another situation where I think maybe the form PS stuff, because that's a little bit more systemic and, and regulatory oriented. But a lot of these rule proposals that they're coming up with, these are these are problems looking for us or solutions looking for a problem, because a lot of these suggestions are already being 
pushed by the institutional investing population. Yeah. Yeah. No, I want to appreciate that uh, additional feedback. And I would agree that in this space in particular, more so than in other areas. Absolutely. More uh, so than other areas. Yeah. You, you, you tend to see uh, uh, again, some of the activity you just talked about, and in, in particular, the stuff around, you know, sometimes it feels like maybe we're, we're looking uh, for problems rather than, than solutions to them. But you, you mentioned form PF and that's probably a good segue to talk yep. about. So on, sure. on January, on January 26th, uh, 2022, uh, the SEC put forward some of these proposed amendments to, to form PF would, you know, certainly be interested, you know, uh, uh, generally about just kind of a high level, uh, you know, what are some of these new reporting requirements? Well, I, I think the main change that, that I saw, well, there are two of them really. The, so one main, the first main change is the reduction in asset level to, for uh, large private, private, private equity advisors dropping from, I think it's from 2 billion to 1.5, I believe is, is the change. So to, for a private equity manager to get bumped into the higher reporting threshold, it's a lower number now. So you're more likely to get there. The actual information that they're requesting from, I think large advisors as well as traditional advisors isn't changing significantly generally with the one exception that there are some new, and I, I, all these things are still new enough that I'm still digesting a lot of it because I, I have to read these things four or five times before <laughs> I really get them. Um, right. But, but there's, there's some reporting that the SEC is expecting for systemic problems that has to happen mm-hmm. pretty quick. And that, that's the area that I think might be a little bit challenging for a lot of advisors because I think a lot of times advise, especially the smaller managers, you know, if you're over 150, but underneath the billion and a half or 2 billion or whatever through your threshold is to be a large advisor, you may not have the internal systems that would flap a, a flash a red flag when one of these reporting op, uh, op requirements pops up. So it's going to be yeah. interesting to see how that gets that's managed. My guess is it'll get managed in the same way that a lot of the PF reporting already gets managed, which is third-party service writers, such as yeah. fund administrators. A lot of the fund administrators that my clients work with have a form PF um, reporting optionality that they can that they can uh, opt in if they need that kind of support. And a lot of these small advisors seems to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned a little bit, kind of even hearkening back to some of the original purpose behind form PF. You know, for, form PF was <clears throat> adopted in kind of the aftermath, I think, of the 2008 financial crisis, really is right. kind of a, a series of efforts to help improve, you know, financial system stability. Certainly there were, you know, different things they had to implement as a result of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform, which we mentioned earlier. And again, um, currently, just for uh, for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with Form PF, all investment advisors registered with the SEC must file a form PF if uh, one, they advise one or more private funds defined typically as uh, funds relying on registration exemptions under 3C1 or 3C7 of the Investment Company Act, and then two, have at least 150 million in um, in assets under management. And so, you know, it's interesting because you, you get into, you start thinking about, okay, the systemic risk that's in play and what needs to be evaluated. And, and I think one, can you know uh, challenge and at least something that um, even on our last episode during in the headline section of our last uh, our last podcast we talked a little bit about some of these uh, different items and the amendments and you know what's interesting is that there hasn't been a lot of I'd say material 
uh, substantive commentary from the SEC in the collect. Like they haven't put out any, I think, like I'll call it material findings that significantly show how they're using the data from Form PF in a way to uh, provide a lot of that evaluation or other stuff like that. And so I guess that would be something I feel like even in the just kind of generally speaking, private fund advisors might be uh, more amenable or there might be a better reaction from them if right. they you know, had a better understanding as to what right. the data yeah. was being used for. If, yeah. the SEC, if the SEC could justify the time and expense these managers are going to to put this information together to say, here's what we learned by looking at last quarter's form PF filings. That would absolutely be something the industry, I think, would would appreciate because right now, especially when you have a you know a, a hedge fund manager that's managing a two hundred fifty dollar two hundred fifty million dollar fund, and it takes him two or three hours to put the, the stuff together for his form PF, and at two hundred fifty million, that feels like such a tiny little slice of the investment universe. The attitude is, well, what is the SEC really learning from this information? There's nothing useful that they can get out of my information. But the truth of the matter is, if you have that from 150 different managers all at the same time, the SEC can start looking at it from a data mining perspective and, and actually extract useful information out of it. So if the SEC were to, to start being a little more public about what they're using it for, I absolutely think that would help mm-hmm. the acceptance mm-hmm. of Form PF in the industry. I agree with that yeah. completely. Yeah. You know, some of the, the other items you mentioned and in, in the dramatic kind of enhancements to form PF happen with the additions of sections five and six, right? So these would add uh, current uh, new uh, current reporting requirements for large hedge fund advisors. So those are those advisors having at least 1.5 billion in regulatory assets under management and all private equity advisors that meet the um, $150 million threshold respectively. And, and these would supplement some of those, again, you talked about kind of either the quarterly or the annual updating amendments. And I, some of these things, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll maybe here's a good way to approach this. I'll read through a couple of the proposed amendments. And what I'm really interested to hear from you is, you know, what are some of your private equity advisor clients saying, or what are they thinking about and talking about some of the challenges that might be associated with these? So um, uh, by, by way of uh, example, under the proposed amendments, Large hedge fund advisors would be required to report the following events within one business day of their occurrence. Uh, Extraordinary investment losses, which the SEC defines as a hedge fund's loss of 20% or more of its recent net asset value over a rolling 10 business day period. Number two, significant margin and default events, such as uh, one, a significant increase in the hedge fund's requirements for margin, collateral or an equivalent, uh, two, a fund's margin default or inability to meet a call for margin, and three, a counterparty's margin default. Another one, uh, any material change in the relationship between a hedge fund and a prime broker, such as material changes to a fund's ability to trade, or termination of the prime brokerage relationship. Another one uh, declines in a fund's unencumbered cash holdings of at least 20% over a rolling 10-day business period. And then another one, I guess I'll read and then I'll, I'll pause and, and get your thoughts. Any significant disruption or degradation of a fund's key operations, including one, its investment trading, valuation reporting, and risk management capacity, two, its compliance with US securities laws and regulations, and three, its ability to properly value its assets. And so again, if any of those things occur, 
the large head fund advisor is going to be required to report the following events within one business day business of their day. appearance. Yeah. Right. So, so what are some of the challenges you're hearing on that front? Well, the obvious ones. I mean, so first and foremost is tracking all these different metrics and knowing that you have the filing obligation. You know, that right there in and of itself is challenging. A lot of advisor shops even miss their, you know, March 31st-ish deadline for filing the Form ADV, and that comes every year. You know it's coming, and you still miss it. Right. So so what's the likelihood that you're going to have even large advisors? Because, you know, with a private fund, you could have a, a, a billion-dollar fund, a billion-and-a-half-dollar fund with 10 people in the office. That's not uncommon. So you don't have a significantly large infrastructure to build these these systems to, to track these triggers. So how often are you going to have advisors that miss them? So that's the first thing to think about is, is, is how do you make sure that you know when you have one of these filing obligations? The second one that, that jumps out that jumps out of me is there were several there are several of them that are based on a materiality standpoint, uh, materiality, materiality threshold. And especially as an attorney, that's concerning because you know, you and I look at something and say, well, well it's on the borderline. Maybe it's material, maybe it's not. And then the right. SEC comes in six months later, a year later and says, well, yeah, but look what happened the next day. Therefore, it must have been material. And that's that's not how you determine materiality. That That's that's using hindsight. And it's, it's frankly not fair. And the SEC does. They have a bad habit of doing that in a lot of different um, different situations. So that's my concern is that they'll use that materiality cudgel <laughs> to, to beat advisors over the head with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great point. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I I know that there are lots of advisors who you know clients of mine in the private equity and private fund space who who truly, you know, they want to do the right thing. I mean, they they very much want to do the right thing. They look at a situation and after thoughtful or considerate analysis, you know, don't think it's going to be in the in the best interest of the fund or the advisor or, or the LPs or, or whatever else to to do X Y Z thing. And then after the fact, given what happens after that, you're right. There there there's some fear or apprehension there that their actions in the time that they made the initial decision are going to be viewed and and colored by the the subsequent events that occurred that yeah. may have you know negatively impacted the fund. Yeah, well the one way that that I that my clients some of my clients have tried to mitigate that risk is by documenting their process. You know, the the SEC and and as an attorney, I mean you and I, I think we've had discussion many times as to attorneys we never want to see our clients write things down because once it's in writing, it's, it's, you know, you can't change it. It's there. It's, it's discoverable. So it's evidence, but from the SEC's perspective, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. So the only way that you can justify that decision to say this particular situation was not material. Here's why we came to that determination. So that six months later, when the SEC comes in and they say, well, why didn't you report this? Clearly it was material because look what happened in the next six months. You can go back and pull your memo and say, well, this is the rationale for why it's mm -hmm. unlikely. It's unlikely the SEC is going to accept the determination that, that it, that it wasn't material, but it should at that point avoid any, any punitive issues because they're going to say, at least you, you, know, you thought about it, you thought about it, or you took the time to, to, um, you know, talk to outside counsel, talk to internal counsel, talk to compliance, and you came to a decision that we disagree with, but you, you had a process in place. Yeah. And we've had this discussion in the past. I, you know, a good example is some, if, if people talk about 2080, about best acts, I've never seen the SEC come in and say, you didn't get best execution. 
what I've seen is them say, you don't have a process for pursuing best execution. I think you have the same kind of situation here, which is it's not so much that they're going to say this was material, therefore you're in trouble. It's, well, we think it's material. You didn't. But because you took a reasonable process and put it in place, you know, we just, we're going to say the next time the same thing comes up, you should treat it as material, but we're not going to, you know, throw you under the bus this time. It's such a great, yeah, right. No, it's such a great point. I'm so glad that you mentioned it because you're, I think you're spot on there. I mean, I think, you know, again, it's not going to be the, in the anecdotal evidence and some of the exams just in the past couple of years that I've helped advisors and, and kind of support them through the examination process. The SEC cares about content. For sure, they care about the ultimate landing spot that you arrived at uh, with a decision. But to exactly to your point, they care far more about the process that you use that, to or ultimately arrive at that spot. And it really is uh, such an important point. It's something that, again, you know, for advisors out there, and exactly to your point, I think if you if you uh, do document it and, and show the rationale by which you arrived at that decision, it, it may not save you from getting a deficiency per se, but it'll, it'll I think, be really good evidence to suggest that, like, this isn't the kind of thing that should ever go to, like, enforcement or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Um, so, um, no, that's that, that's great. Um all right. Well, let's let's talk. I mean, we've you know, there's so much you could dig into with regard to some of the form PF reporting. But I, I do want to continue because it wasn't just uh, in the last several weeks, the amendments to form PF that has, again, I think, continued to rock the uh, private funds landscape. But in addition, there was a, a risk alert that came out, I think, the very next day. I think it was uh, yeah. January 27th. The risk alert came out. And, and again, so, you know, for, for background, there initially was a risk alert that, that came out in uh, June of 2020. And then so this risk alert was kind of an extension of that. And the SEC listed out some uh, kind of key observations that they had found, some deficiencies uh, that they had found with the private fund advisors uh, that they had reviewed uh, during the subsequent time frame. And so I wanted just to pick your brain, you know, what, what were some of those key items that the SEC exam staff highlighted uh, uh, in the risk alert? We can certainly go through the specifics, but I think taking a step back and looking at it sort of in the, the larger context is useful. And and what, I, what it boils down to for me is, especially with this, this, new, this uh, risk alert, there's nothing new here. There, there, there were no surprises in my mind in this at all. And it all boils down to do what you say and say what you do. I think that's the, 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 the what's the word, the moral of the story the SEC is trying to get across, which is if you say you're going to do something, whether it's in your PPM, your ADV, your client documents, whatever it is, make sure that you put systems in place to make sure that you are doing it and you do it correctly. And <clears throat> if you, change something that you're doing, make sure you then update your documents to reflect that change. And I think every single risk uh, risk alert factor that they noted kind of comes back to that in some way, shape or form. So um, not getting informed consent from clients for, for conflicts of interest. You know, every PPM I ever draft talks about that neg negative consent process for assignment that everybody puts in for change of control. And most of them talk about using that same process when there's any other conflict of interest that needs client consent. And then advisors don't go out and get the consent when they need it. Doing your fee calculations, whether and this, this applies both to private funds and uh, we've seen it in the SMA context as well, where you have a, a, a provision that says we have a tiered fee or we have um, there are some sort of uh, fee rebate or fee reduction. And 
the, the advisor doesn't go back and check and make sure that the clients are getting the right fee calculations taken out of their account. They just assume that it was set correctly when they put it in place and they don't bother checking again. And so they end up having changes or getting bad data and ending up with uh, bad fee calculations and they never bother checking checking to make sure it was accurate. Some of the other ones, um, what are some good ones? You know, on the marketing and advertising front, obviously yeah. a lot of folks are paying really close attention to, um, well, knowing that by November 4th, I think it is of this year, they've got to be in compliance right. with we the new, new regime. Yeah, yep. exactly. From a more a performance and marketing standpoint, uh, did the staff have any kind of observations in, in that area? Right. And, and again, these are no, again, nothing new. So uh, misleading track records. So, you know, a track record that doesn't take into account the fact that, you know, in the same time frame that your fund re returned 48%, the S&P 500 returned 50%, you know, so you have to make sure that your track record is presented in the context that it was generated in so that they don't think necessarily just your acumen at, at picking stocks. There are other factors at play. So making sure that your track record, track record isn't misleading in that way, calculating it incorrectly. And again, this is just, you know, doing your math correctly and going back and checking it on a regular basis. Um, and then a big issue that comes up uh, in the private fund world because people jump from shop to shop is portability. And so the old, there's uh, the old yeah. rule. There's the old rule that you know uh, performance is is portable for a portfolio manager as long as number one, it's the same person or people responsible for the investment decisions. And it's in, in the context of a group, it's usually considered a, a majority of the people is how most people interpret it. But that's only the first piece. Cause then the second piece is then having the underlying documentation to justify that performance record. And that's where a lot of private funds fall down because, you know, Jeff Blumberg jumps from XYZ shop to ABC shop. I have audits for all of the, you know, for the years that I was managing the portfolio. <clears throat> and so I want to use that track record at my new shop but an audit doesn't give you monthly performance. It gives you annual performance. So you can't use annual audits to generate a monthly performance chart that you can back up. And right. I've seen that happen all the time where I say, you know, you have to go back and get the underlying documentation, whether it's brokerage statements or statements from the fund administrator, some third party source that's not generated by the manager to say, here's the track record. Um, so yeah. that, that's, that's a big one. And the new rule, I think it, it's not as explicitly required under the new rule, but it's still in the books and records piece. So I think the SEC is going to have the exact same expectation that they've had yeah. in the past about uh, backing up track records. Yeah, no, that's a, a great point. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the the portability piece. And it, I mean, you're right. The misleading track records, inaccurate performance calculations, a lot of that stuff. Uh, certainly we've, we've talked about before would be kind of standard fare, uh, but the portability piece was interesting. Another interesting part of the risk alert that at least you know struck me, and this is actually interesting because it relates to a couple episodes ago uh, when we interviewed Craig Watanabe and, and it was talking about kind of cybersecurity. And one of the areas we touched on is like due diligence there and, yep. and talking about that. And and you're, and we'll, we'll get to it here. You mentioned the, the new rule proposal, uh, which has a lot of uh, content that we can dig into today. Part of that, the, the new set of rule proposals also included 
you know, a new uh, a focus on cybersecurity and the fact that, you know, there's you're going to have to meet certain minimum requirements when it comes to your firm's cybersecurity program. And I think, you know, a key part of that is going to be due diligence. So that part I found kind of at least a common thread and certainly something of note that then in this risk alert, they're highlighting the fact that they observed, as they called it, you know, certain fiduciary failures for some of those PE firms for the lack of due diligence that they were doing on key service providers and some of the inadequate policies that were, were related to such practices. And I, I, I will say, you know, the, especially, especially the cybersecurity uh, proposal, I think that's the least problematic of, of the new proposals, mainly because they've been talking about cybersecurity now since the pandemic started. So two plus years, they've been talking about it. They've been examining on it. They've been issuing deficiency letters. They, they've put out their first enforcement action, uh, I want to say late last year. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're actually coming out with a rule that sort of lays out ground zero, this, this is the minimum expectations now is useful. Yeah. And from what I've, from, I've had a couple conversations here and there with some of the IT people that my clients are working with. And so far they've all said, yeah, all of these standards and the proposed rule are kind of they're they're kind of like starting points for for cybersecurity. There's nothing unexpected, and it's something that anyone who's paying at any attention at all to cybersecurity cybersecurity should already be putting in place anyway. Yeah, that's so, good so to I, know. I I think that of of all the recent uh, uh, proposals and, and and releases, that one is the least problematic. <laughs> uh, I'm sure uh, that is music to the ears of many of our listeners. Um, on that front. And, um, and I think you're right, especially even for, uh, I'll even say for private equity or private fund advisors in particular, who tend to embrace outsourcing things that are outside the scope. Uh, they tend to run really lean and efficient yes. shops, right? So Absolutely. they're probably m- more akin to outsource that activity to someone who specializes in it. So, all right. So all of that in mind, right? You, we've, we've set up now the kind of form PF, uh, you know, rule proposal and those amendments. We then set up, you know, the, the risk alert that was pushed out the next day at the end of January, talking about some of the deficiencies that the examination staff had seen during exams. Um, and then and all of this led to uh, uh, February 9th, 2022, when the SEC uh, really put in place just a large swath of different private fund rule amendments uh, to the Advisors Act that cover a variety of different new reporting requirements and other obligations on to private funds and private fund advisors. So as we dig into some of the specifics and, and we'll get there first, I guess, just at a high level, Jeff, you know, what's some of your initial reaction to the, the rule amendments and, and maybe what were what were a couple key things that really stuck out to you? So the majority, I think, of the private fund rule amendments are just nuanced tweaks of what people are already doing. So a good example, the quarterly statement rule, you know, most private fund advisors are already sending out quarterly statements to their investors. So mm-hmm. the nuanced difference is there's some additional pieces of information they're going to have to put in there, some line item, like lining out of uh, compensation paid to the advisor, expenses, uh, to the extent you're running a private equity shop and your portfolio manager or your portfolio companies are paying you know, consulting fees to the private fund manager, things like that. So basically being a little more, as, as Gensler said, transparent when it comes to the fees and expenses in the fund. So a lot of the stuff 
it was already being reported in so much shape or form, but they're basically wanting you to 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 dig in and and be a lot more specific in your quarterly in your quarterly reporting. So mm-hmm. I, that's gonna. I mean, so number one, like you said, most private funds outsource this anyway. So all the fund administrators are just gonna change the reporting, and it'll take be taken care of if this gets adopted. So it's it's aside from the fact that a lot of managers may not like the the, the depth of information they're 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 now giving their investors it won't be challenging yeah. to get it out there um gotcha the the audit rule i think is a significant change so right now the vast majority of private fund managers are run by rias rias have to comply with the custody rule the easiest way for a private fund manager to comply with the custody rule is to do a fund audit on an annual basis and deliver within the necessary time frame so that's not so much a change, but there are two significant issues that, that, that we run into here. Number one, and I just noticed this today when I was looking at it again, the audit rule adds in that auditor independence requirement that mutual funds have that the custody rule I'm pretty confident does not have. And so I think that's going to be something that fund managers are going to have to start thinking about. They didn't have to think about before. So can you flush that out a little bit for some of our listeners who may not be familiar when you're talking about the independence of the auditor kind of maybe, yeah, kind of flush that out. So I don't remember the specific players, but there were a number of mutual funds that had investments in Sears and Sears somehow got affiliated with H&R Block, which was affiliated with one of the big three or four accounting firms. And so that account, I don't remember who it was. I don't remember if it was PwC or ENY or somebody like that, but sure. that they had to step back from mm-hmm. doing the audit of any mutual fund that held Sears in their portfolio, because that was a violation of the independence rules. And that's not something that private fund managers tend to think about right now. They, they haven't had to in the past. So that's going to be yeah, an, an interesting conversation between the private fund managers and the auditors, and then you know, it, assuming this this pre- this proposal goes through and gets adopted as as proposed, they're going to have a, an interesting conversation to determine whether or not their auditors can continue auditing uh, their fund. The second piece of this is, and I have a, a number of clients that do this, where they have you know one main fund that's audited, no problem, but then they do a lot of one-off funds here and there where they get an opportunity that isn't really appropriate for their flagship fund, but they want to help their investor, their clients invest in some private offering. And, you know, when Alibaba was, was still private before it went public, I had a client that, that had access to an investment into Alibaba. So they set up a fund to give their clients access. And they complied with the custody rule by having the assets held by a qualified custodian, have the qualified custodians and quarterly statements for the entire fund to all investors and do the annual surprise examination to confirm the existence of the assets, which is one of the options under the custody rule. Well, if this proposal goes through, that's no longer an option. That one-off fund has to be audited now and has to be audited by an independent advisor. So that's going, or not advisor, an independent auditor. So that's going to increase the cost of operating those one-offs potentially to a point where they're no longer economically feasible. So that could be be a big negative. Well, right. And I mean, by the way, if that like, again, for some private equity advisors, uh, private fund advisors, not being able to include that particular opportunity in the larger portfolio of the fund, you know, could really be to the detriment of the limited partners. Yeah, of the investors. And so that's one of those situations where, you know, again, unfortunately, you know, even rules with the best laid intentions there to ultimately help the investors, how that plays out, you know, practically speaking, doesn't doesn't always work out that way. 
the law of unintended consequences. <laughs> a wonderful thing. And, and w- w- that's, that's the reason you and I have jobs, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. So a couple other things in the, in the change. So similar requirement when, and this is all, this is only in the private equity world really. Um, but when there's an advisor led secondary offering, so somebody wants to get out of the fund, the fund isn't liquid yet. And so there's a third party willing to step in and buy that interest. But the advisor is the one that's kind of marshalling that process. It's going to require a fairness opinion. So basically an audit of sorts. That one, I actually, it makes sense. We'll see how the private equity world reacts to it, but that they're the ones yeah. that are going to be affected by that one. The next two, I think, are significant changes. It, it's, it's the same advice I've been giving clients for a while, but it was never a, you cannot do this, which is what the SEC has now said. So it has to do with side letters. The SEC has never been a big fan of preferential liquidity or preferential transparency for investors. The idea being that if I, as an investor in the fund, either can get out before you, Patrick, or I know more about what's in the, in the portfolio, I might be able to get out and take my money before some negative situation, a negative event occurs and leave you holding the bag for that negative event. So in the past, I've always told my clients, the SEC doesn't like it. They will, they, they will, um, if you have this type of provision, they will look very, very closely at both how you're handling it and how you've disclosed it. But the only way you can do it prior to this rule is with a lot of extremely specific disclosure and basically saying you have quarterly liquidity on 45 days notice, but we've given one of our investors quarterly liquidity on 15 days notice. And you should understand the risk that that generates. And nobody wants to give that disclosure. If the rule passes as proposed, not only can you, does the disclosure not help? You just cannot do that. You cannot give people preferential liquidity. You cannot give people preferential transparency into the portfolio. So you either give everybody those same rights or nobody those rights. So that's the first change. The second one is just being a lot more explicit about any side letter provisions. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So, you know, the, the most common uh, side letter provision you have is, is fee op, fee benefits. So instead of paying two and 20, I'm going to give you one and a half and 15. And so I have standard language in all of my documents that says we can offer people different fees, you know, and then that's I, I, under the current world. I think that's sufficient. The question is under this proposed rule, whether we'd have to be a little more specific. And that's going to play out over the next couple of years if uh, if this rule gets adopted as proposed as the SEC starts examining on it. Because I just I don't know how much specificity they really mean when they say they want specificity. And yeah, it's, it's going to be a gray area. So, man, there's a lot that we could probably dig into <laughs> with regard to those two things. Well, one yeah. of the things that I'll, I'll say just as an initial reaction, especially on the first one that you mentioned, which is that inability to provide potentially, you know, uh, a different uh, liquidity, you know, preferential treatment or, or provisions that, that could ultimately be part of, a, I guess, a side letter that you might have with a, an anchor investor, anchor limited partner and stuff in, in your fund. Number one, you know, uh, that the, the disclosure you described that you would have to provide folks that would say, you know, the redemption thing is 45, but uh, we give that, uh, you know, 15 days to one person or whatever else. Like, can you imagine the number of upset limited partners that you would get when they're, yeah. I mean, I, I get it. Like, you know, and limited partners, especially sophisticated ones are going to understand that people that come with a lot more money to bear are often going to get at least better terms than, than they might get. But still that's, that's, I'm sure going to be a tough pill to swallow. And then the other side is for some of those activities that are just flat out prohibited, you know, I, I wonder 
how much ultimately in it, it may not be like a light switch it may not happen overnight but i wonder ultimately how some of that might deter folks like large institutional investors from investing in some of these private equity funds and and, and products and other stuff like that right that may lead them back to find other ways to deploy that capital that may ultimately impact it. yeah and so what kind of deterrent that might have ultimately on the marketplace so that's really interesting well Obviously, there's a lot that I think is going to continue to shake out as it relates to these rule proposals for any of our listeners that are, you know, interested in this space and potentially commenting and providing feedback to the SEC. They did uh, say that uh, comments need to be in uh, by April 11th. They had kind of an interesting uh, comment period uh, end date, which was. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was say that, that, that's one of the biggest things about these rule proposals that concern me is historically there's been anywhere from 45 to 90 days for comments on rule proposals. And Gensler is pushing these through with a 30 day comment period. It's, and, and that's it's 30 days from the date of publication in the, in the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations. Mm-hmm. So it's not 30 days from, the, from when they were first proposed. It's 30 days from when they actually get published in in the in the formal document so it's a little longer than that but still that's a very quick turnaround time and i know for a fact nscp you and i are involved uh iaa which is another big investment advisor association they are all scrambling to make mm-hmm. sure that they have time to think through these proposals and get comments to the extent they think they're necessary. You know, I yeah. don't know that, that from an NSC perspective, I don't know that we've thought a, a lot about I mean, whether or not the NSCP should be commenting yet, because these 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 are are more policy and and advisor issues more so than compliance officer issues, I think. But there's there's yeah. some nuances here that, that might be compliance officer specific, I think. I, I think so too. And, and, and then there was even the tie in. I mean, they, they even talked about now, granted, I think the amendment to the compliance rule that was even mentioned specifically in the, uh, the rule proposals was probably something that, you know, I would say many folks certainly. I have long considered to be a best practice with regard to your annual review um, and the stuff that you're doing to meet that third prong of the Advisors Act compliance rule that, that you document that. I mean, I think yeah. that's been something that uh, people have advocated for for some time. But nonetheless, you're, you're, you're right. I think that there are some aspects of the different rule proposals that that would, I think, um, uh, you know, involve the compliance officer, the, the overall compliance function at those firms. And so I, I, I think the NSCP Regulatory Advisory Committee is is looking to provide a, a, a commentary on it. Um, so I guess the, the last thing maybe I'll just add, you know, to kind of round out our conversation, obviously there has been right an onslaught of stuff from the regulatory side of the house, just kind of looking forward in the private fund space and, and generally speaking, you know, what are some other issues? And it, it can be stuff that either we've mentioned today in some of these other items, or it can be stuff that, you know, you're seeing anecdotally with some of the private fund advisors, private equity advisors that you're working with. What, what are some other issues out there in the space that are affecting private funds right now that, that you think are, are you know, noteworthy? Again, it's it's the same things just coming up again. So fees and expenses, they've been, you know, ever since the SEC started acquiring private fund managers to register, they started paying more attention to the private equity world. And fees and expenses in private equity are a huge issue. A big part of that reasoning is a private equity fund is going to be around for 10, 15 years. And it's not that easy to adjust your documents once people have invested because they can't just take their money and leave. So you have to get their consent. 
And in a 10-year period, the types of expenses that you want to be spending the fund's money on can change significantly. And so trying to figure out whether or not some new, you know, data service like, oh God, what was the, uh, there was a, an SEC action recently against the, one of the data providers, and I can't remember the name of it, but they aggregated app information for investors. So whether something like that can be paid for by a fund as opposed to the advisor, you know, if you didn't deal with it as uh, well enough in your fund documents, you might be stuck paying for that out of the advisor's fees as opposed to having the fund bear the cost if it made sense for the fund to bear the cost. Valuation is never going away. That's always going to be an issue, even more so in private equity than in, in liquid funds. So that's not going anywhere. There's been talk about the custody rule and revisions to the custody rule. If this rule proposal goes through, I'm not sure how much appetite the SEC is going to have for additional changes to the custody rule because a big part of the problem was those one-off funds, and they've now kind of made that a non-issue because they've hardwired the audit. So, you know, it's there's nothing new under the sun here. It's the same yeah. old things coming back again and again. So, do you see anything happening? Uh, you know, in the DOL related any of the is there any Department of Labor related stuff that you think is going to impact private funds? So. So there's one significant issue that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out whether the DOL is going to respect the SEC approach or not. So for those of you who don't know, the DOL rule or PTE 2020-02 is a new IRA rollover rule that the, SEC, the DOL has put in place having to do with how money flows from one retirement plan into another, the most common being from a plan into an IRA. And so what that looks like. And, and the big change is that an investment advisor who either recommends or effectively recommends that an, that a plan participant roll from a 401k into an IRA now has some significant compliance obligations to ensure that that advice is in the best interest of, um, of the plan participant. It's fair and balanced as full disclosure, blah, blah, blah. There are a lot of requirements. So the SEC's has, has kind of accepted the stance that the fund is an advisor's client. So any interaction that a fund advisor has with a prospective investor is not a recommendation. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a sales process, not a recommendation. The recommendations are to the fund, not to the fund investor. I'm not so sure that DOL is going to accept that when, when a plan participant in a 401k says, I'm retiring, what do I do with this million dollars in my 401k account? And the advisor says, well, you can put it in my fund over here. I can manage it for you here whether the DOL is going to accept that the, the SEC stance that that interaction is not a recommendation because the DOL has a much broader interpretation of what a recommendation is. Yeah. So I, I don't know where that's going to go yet. I, I, I've talked to people on both sides of the issue. I, I just don't know the answer to that one yet. Yeah. No, I, well, I mean, one, that, that is really a great kind of advice and insight for our listeners because I know many of our listeners, one of the other topics that we have discussed at length on some prior episodes is compliance with the, the new DOL fiduciary rule and what firms can do to try to wrap their arms around the various parts of that. You know, and I'm sure many of our listeners, you know, their, their shops either have a, a direct connection because they, they also manage private funds or they have an affiliate advisor that runs private funds for some of their uh, ultra high net worth and high net worth clients. And so, uh, getting around that issue would also be something that would be important for them to do. Well, um, Jeff, th this has been uh, incredibly, incredibly insightful, and we really, really appreciate 
you, you know, coming on the show today uh, to, to talk about private funds. We'll get you out of here with a fun question. And one, I, I, you know, completely dropped the ball at the beginning of the episode. To, I should have mentioned as well that not only is Jeff an NSCP board member, he's also the uh, chair elect of the, of the NSCP. And um, uh, very excited to have uh, Jeff serve in that leadership position. But, but my last question is not going to be at all related to that. It's going to be more fun than that. So uh, the Super Bowl and, you know, full disclosure, here for our listeners. Even talking about the Super Bowl is a little painful for me right now. Um, was, was born uh, in Cincinnati, live in Cincinnati now. Definitely am a, a Bengals fan. And, um, you know, it's been 33 years since we've been to that game. So a, a little tough right now. Uh, uh, still, the the, the uh, sting is still, is still a little fresh. But nonetheless, Jeff, my question for you would be, what was your favorite part of the Super Bowl, right? Maybe it was one of the commercials that you saw. Maybe it was, uh, you know, um, uh, the uh, uh, the halftime show. Um, it certainly couldn't have been the game because obviously I know how hard you were rooting for the Bengals. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but what was your favorite part? I actually was rooting for the Bengals, but only because it would have been the first time we ever had a quarterback who won the Heisman, the national championship, and a Super Bowl. That would have been very cool. Oh, um, yeah. I, I thought... I thought it was a good game. I, the, the ending was a bit tough because I, I thought the refs, they didn't throw any flags the first, you know, 59 minutes out of 60. And then four flags in the last minute changed the, the way the game played out. Um, Preach. So, Preach. So, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know that they weren't valid, but yeah. it, it just seemed weird the way they threw them. But my, I will tell you, my favorite part of the whole show was the return of the E-Trade baby. I am I am very excited about where those where those ads go next because one of my favorite ads of all time when back when I used to be a golfer and yeah. there, was, there was one of them where um, the baby's talking to the old guy who's playing golf with them and the baby goes it was on the cart path Shankopotamus and, <laughs> I know the one you're talking about yes yeah that was, so I'm I'm looking forward to some new E Trade baby commercials. Fantastic. Well, no, I agree. Look, if uh, if we can all get behind anything, I think funny Super Bowl commercials would be at the top of that at that that list. Um, Absolutely, Jeff. Thank you again so much for coming on today's show, and uh, look forward to having you back here on the show at some point down the road. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Had a good time. The final part of today's show features another installment of our outtake segment. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners. If compliance were a TV show, think of this as the bloopers reel, where we look at entertaining, sometimes humorous, and typically unsettling activities carried out at financial services firms that hopefully provide us all with a roadmap of what not to do when facing a similar situation or trying to avoid a similar compliance breakdown inside our respective firms. Essentially, leave these activities on the cutting room floor and outside your compliance program. In today's outtakes, we're looking at a broker-dealer that recently settled FINRA charges for best execution and supervisory violations, and for failing to disclose material aspects of its relationships with trading venues. Of note, FINRA stated that the firm failed to conduct reasonable, regular, and rigorous reviews of its equities order flow and options order flow. These shortcomings included all of the following types of orders marketable equity orders, where the firm failed to review the execution quality that was provided by each individual market, and only reviewed the execution quality that it received in the aggregate of all markets. 
for non-marketable equity orders, where the firm did not review the fill rates it received from certain markets or evaluate whether it could have received better fill rates from competing markets. For odd lot equity orders, where the firm did not conduct a reasonable review of odd lot equity orders to determine whether there were material differences in execution quality between specific competing markets. Even after the firm began such reviews, it did not document them. For marketable option orders, where the firm did not review execution quality information of competing markets. For non-marketable option orders, Although the firm reviewed and compared execution quality for non-marketable orders that it received from market makers, it did not review execution quality information of competing markets until much, much later. And for multi-leg option orders, where the firm did not review execution quality information of competing markets. To settle these and other charges, including a failure to establish and maintain a supervisory system reasonably designed to achieve compliance with best execution obligations, the firm agreed to a censure in a hefty fine of $850,000. So what's the key takeaway here? While it's unfortunate that this broker-dealer firm in question was unable to provide the reasonable, regular, and rigorous reviews required of it, the resulting disciplinary action and letter of acceptance should prove to be an incredibly helpful tool for other BD registrants looking for a punch list of the proper protocols that must be established in order to ensure best execution for all types of orders. Broker-dealer firms would do themselves very well to kick the tires on their own policies and procedures to make sure it can meet the mandate in order to perform the proper execution quality and related reviews articulated in this particular order. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Jeff Blumberg, for coming on today's show to share his valuable insights on the recent private fund rule proposals. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 